I brought um, two tomatoes this morning. Um, any gardeners here? Garden? Okay, I have a garden. Okay, this tomato um, looks amazing, right? It's perfectly ripe all the way around, um, nice and red. This tomato looks a little beat up. It's cracked. Uh, the top of the tomato, by the way, is called the shoulder. It actually has shoulders, a little green on the shoulder still. How many of you think this tomato tastes better than this tomato? Raise your hands. This tomato tastes better. Go ahead. Raise them high. Don't be ashamed, people. Be, be brave. It's safe. It's safe. Okay. How many of you think this tomato tastes better? Okay. The first group of you were wrong. <laughs> when I said it was safe, I, I lied. You're, you're wrong. Um, this tomato came from the store, and there is actually a scientific reason why this tomato does not taste as good as the other tomato. It's a scientific fact. If you're over 70, you will understand this. But basically, in the last 70 years, tomato growers have been cultivating this, like, uber-perfect tomato that what happened was they were having issues. They would harvest the tomatoes when they were green. And when they got to the store, some of them would be still green and some would be fully ripened and would be red. And if you're a replenishment manager, you work in replenishment, you know that that's going to cause problems for you and your produce section. Um, and so over the last 70 years, breeders have began, have found a way to breed this tomato in such a way that they can be harvested. You can harvest all the tomatoes off a specific plant or a field when they reach a certain level of uh, greenness, and they will ship them to the store, and every tomato will ripen at the same time. The problem was, as they did this, this breed of tomato developed a genetic defect which prevents it from photosynthesizing correctly, very efficiently. Can anybody come and explain photosynthesis? Either can I. But I know what that means is that this tomato has less sugar. And we all know that a tomato is actually a fruit. Sugar is important for this tomato to taste right. And so scientifically, because of a genetic defect that prevents efficient photosynthesis, this tomato tastes like cardboard. And I knew this because I wanted tomatoes like my grandpa used to grow, right? And so a couple years ago, we decided at the Ferguson house we would plant a garden so that we could, and, and the rest of the stuff is just kind of filler so that we can have tomatoes that taste like a tomato should taste. And even though this tomato is cracked, because I think it's because it got cold this week um, and kind of ghetto looking green, this tomato, if you were to slice these open right now, this tomato would taste like 5,000 times better than that tomato, scientific fact. And I began a quest for these tomatoes. Now, it turns out you have to be a grandpa to grow a tomato. <laughs> I know nothing about gardening. At least I didn't until a couple years ago. And I, I know a little bit now. If you, Luckily, this is why the Internet was created. So my Google search history looks at things like um, how to plant a garden, how, to, how much water do I need to water my garden, when do you plant squash, when do you plant tomatoes, um, what is an aphid, how do I kill an aphid? How much seven dust can I consume before I get cancer? Those are like, <laughs> gardeners understand what the seven dust thing is. And you learn something because what I'm doing is I'm actually, I'm, I'm like a farmer. I'm cultivating something, right? I'm doing the preparation work. I'm putting it in the ground. And this becomes like an, obs like an unhealthy obsession. I'm driving, my wife is sitting here, I'm driving Rachel crazy right now. Because I like every morning I wake up and I, I, before I go to work, I go out and I check the garden to see if like anything magically happened overnight. I get back from work, you know, because I've been gone for eight and a half hours, walk by the kids, they're like, Daddy, I'm like, check the tomatoes. Um, 
I, like, every time I see something, I'm, like, searching. I'm like, what is this? Like, what is that? What's going on? Last night, I was literally, uh, one of my neighbors goes to church here, Michael Palladino. He is a fellow obsessed gardener. And I was like, I think I have a, uh, I think I have a squash vine borer that has destroyed my squash. And so I'm, like, sending him pictures of this, like, weird little, I'm doing, I literally had an exacto knife, and I'm, like, doing squash surgery in my backyard. Because it becomes, like, an obsession. I mean, it turns out you can buy squash for like $1.25 a pound, and they have unlimited quantities of it at the neighborhood market right down the street from my house, right? But there's, there's something about cultivating the ground and getting it out yourself that makes it worth this being like the most t- t- expensive tomato per ounce in the history of the world. And the point is, when you grow a garden, you begin to understand what it's like to cultivate and to put effort and energy and sweat and time and care into something that you don't really fully have control of. And so today I want us to think about, and it turns out this cultivating idea is you're out there, you know, weeding the garden and looking at you're like, this has a lot of tentacles to my life. Like there's a lot of things that we cultivate. We cultivate our marriages. We cultivate um, friendships. We cultivate children as we try to raise them in the way that we think that they should be raised. And, And what I want us to talk about today is cultivating gospel-centered relationships, because cultivating has a whole lot of applications to our life spiritually. And it's all through the Bible, this kind of metaphor of like um, gardening. We'll use tomatoes. I don't think that's what they were focused on so much, but this idea of planting. I mean, Jesus gave this parable about seeds, and he talks about some seeds landed on the good soil, and some on the road, and some yielded fruit, and some didn't. Some grew up and withered before they yielded fruit, and like all that stuff's happened in my garden, right? And so you begin to understand this. And actually, Paul in the New Testament gives this um, really good kind of little picture of what's happening in our in our spiritual lives. There was this church that were divided over following two people. Some of them wanted to follow the apostle Paul and the other group in this church wanted to follow this guy named Apollos that we don't really know that much about. And Paul's saying, no, no, guys, you have it all wrong. He, Paul says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God is the one causing the growth. And so there's this analogy. See that kind of like cultivating farmer kind of like analogy. Any like farmers here? Okay, that helps me because I don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about cultivate cultivating um, other than what I've learned from Google. So if you're an actual farmer, you can give me tomato growing tips later. But I want us to talk about cultivating gospel-centered relationships. And we're going to look at this interaction that Jesus has with a woman that we've probably all heard of or about or read this story before. And we're going to look from the life of Christ and see how did he cultivate gospel-centered relationships And what can we learn? But I want to break it down a little bit. First of all, cultivating is this idea. And I I think we need to talk about this because you know what? In our world where we live in a everything is always on and always available kind of world, we don't really have to cultivate much of anything anymore. I mean, you want a tomato? It's December 15th. No problem. You go to the store, there's a whole thing of tomatoes. Like, you didn't have to put that thing in the ground. You didn't have to. You don't know where it came from. You don't care. You just want a tomato and you have it. And you, you know, kind of take that out to all parts of your life. I mean, I want to learn how to grow a tomato. Like, I don't need to know someone. I don't need to talk to my grandpa. I just Google up, you know, how to grow a tomato. And there's more information than I could ever even comprehend on anything all the time. And so we don't really have to cultivate much anymore. But there are some things in life that only come about with some work and some effort and some, some cultivization. 
The second thing is I want us to talk about relationships are one of those things. Relationships are one of those things that take time and effort and investment, and we don't always control the outcome. We have to cultivate them. And relationships are something that has to be cultivated. But but you can learn about cultivating relationships or having healthy relationships in a whole lot of different places. I mean, you could go to Barnes and Noble and and look at their like 92 linear feet of of self-help books and learn how to be a a better dad, a better husband, a better wife, a better uncle, a better cousin, a better employee. You can learn about how to have any relationship you have in this world. You could probably go find a book and learn how to do it. So we want to talk about something that's very spiritual very close to the heart of the gospel, and that is gospel-centered relationships. How do we cultivate not just regular relationships, because anybody can kind of do that. How do we cultivate relationships that are centered around, that pivot upon, that rotate around this idea of the gospel? And so before we can do that, we need to understand what the gospel actually is. And the gospel is this. Well, this is kind of the working definition for us today. The gospel is... The entire story of God reconciling us to himself. And it kind of has three parts. We can kind of focus in on one part sometime, like the cross and Jesus and Jesus dying for your sins. And, and that certainly is, is part of the gospel, but that's a part of the gospel the way the Declaration of Independence is part of America. It might be one of the pinnacle moments or the key moment, but there's a whole lot before that and a whole lot after that, right? And so the before we get to the cross thing is this idea of the gospel is that you and I and every person that we know and interact with every day was created by and for God. That's where the gospel begins. As I understand, we were created in his image by him and for him. But because sin came into the world and we sinned and we rebelled against God, we're living in this like broken condition where we're not living to be the people that God wanted us to be. And so God comes in the form of Jesus Christ to redeem us. Now, the word redeem is a financial kind of transaction, right? Like when I went to um, the grocery store yesterday to buy this, this I, I redeemed this thing from the store, right? And they took my money, and in exchange, they gave me this cardboard tomato. And, and there's a financial transaction of being bought. And so the idea is that when, when Christ redeems us, he buys us back from that broken state. And then the, the back half of the gospel is really about him recreating me and you and all those who he's redeemed and all those who he wants to redeem, recreating us to be back to in his image, to be the people that he wants us to be. That's the gospel. And so the question for us today is, how do we cultivate relationships where those three truths are the center that they all spin around? That that becomes what we think about how we view people, how we interact people, they all, it all is governed by this idea of the gospel. And then we're going to talk about relationships. And relationships are really important because all of life happens through relationships. I met my wife because through relationships I have with other people. Every job I've ever gotten in my whole career, I've gotten through relationship with somebody relationships matter. And, and there's, it's been said that the, the shyest person on the planet will influence roughly 10,000 people in their lifetime. I mean, even those of us who are really shy, who are kind of like loners or quiet people, like you have relationships, a significant number of relationships in life. That's how life happens. That's what life is all about. And so today we're going to talk about cultivating this idea of putting time and effort and energy, cultivating relationships that center around the gospel. Let's look at a story from Jesus' life and let's see how he did this. 
and then let's see what we can learn from them. John chapter 4. I'm going to read a long story here, but we've got to read the whole story. And so just here we go. I'll interject some things along the way. John 4, verse 1, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, his disciples were, he left Judea and he went away again to Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was the sixth hour. And then came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And verse 9, the woman is shocked. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? Because Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And John, um, Mike has kind of talked about this at different times in the past. It's important understanding the story of Jesus. But the Jews and the Samaritans really didn't like each other. And that's going to be kind of a key to this story. They would actually not even travel through this area if they could avoid it. Um, verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, I knew, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is saying, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for water. And Jesus is kind of going like crazy spiritual guy on her right now. And she doesn't understand because she replies back and says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. Like, you don't, how are you going to give me water? You don't have a bucket and you can't get it out of the well. You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you not greater than our father Jacob? Are you who gave us this well and drank of it himself? And his sons and his cattle. And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never thirst, but the water I give them will become in him a, a well of water springing up to eternal life. So he's saying, No, you don't understand. If you drink the water I give you, you will never thirst. You will have a well that is always full within you. But the woman still doesn't understand it. She still is thinking in physical terms. And so she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. This woman didn't have like water running in her house. Just think about this for your own life every day. If you had to actually like send someone from your family with a bucket, like, I don't know, a quarter mile, a half mile to get all the water that you needed every day. Um, my wife and kids would do a lot of walking. That would be rough, right? <laughs> And she's going, I don't want to have to walk out here to get water. And he, she still isn't on like a spiritual plane. The woman answered and said, or Jesus said, go and call your husband to come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you said correctly, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This is who you, this, this you have said truly. Do you understand what he's saying to her? He's kind of saying like, yeah, darn right you don't have a husband. Like you've lived with five different guys and now you're living with someone else. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you people say Jerusalem is the place of worship. So she goes like, you know, straight to debate. Well, let's just, let's not talk about me and my life and my husband's. Let's talk about where, where we should have church. And Jesus doesn't fall for it. He says, woman, believe me, an hour is coming and neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvations of the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. He stays focused on her heart in spirit and in truth. 
For the Father seeks such to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know a Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Saying, yeah, that guy, that's me. And we don't have time to read the whole rest of the story, but the woman runs back to town, tells everybody in town to come and see this guy who's at the well. Jesus ends up staying in this town for two days. And the Bible says that because of this woman's testimony, many people began to believe. And I think there's four things in here that we can learn from how Jesus interacted with this woman that if we were to do in our life, we would learn how to better cultivate gospel-centered relationships. So let's start with number one. The first thing is gospel-centered relationships are cultivated by being available. Gospel-centered relationships are cultivated by being available. Verse 4 is a simple little verse that says he had to pass through Samaria. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. There was this racial thing that's kind of weird, and you can, if you can um, pardon the, uh, the phrase, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds. They were Jewish people who had married into other races, and the Jews hated that. And so if you could think about like the geography of being like trying to go from like, I don't know, Fayetteville to Neosho, instead of like, you know, going through Rogers and Bentonville, the Jews would like walk through like Tahlequah or um, Rust. I don't know my Arkansas geography, but like, I don't know, someplace over like go, go out 412, right? And take the windy road. They, they would go around. I mean, they treat it kind of like I treat Texas, like I'd rather just not go there. There were some Texans in the first service, and it got a little awkward right there. But Jesus was constantly available for people. He was available for this woman who he had no right to be available for because he should have kept her at arm's length. He shouldn't even have been there. He was available for the old woman who grabbed his, the back of his shirt when he was walking through a crowd and he healed her. He was available for the guy who was lowered through the roof by his friends in the room of a house full of crowd of people with needs. Jesus was available for him. He was available for little children when the adults around him thought that they should stay away. He was always, always, always available. And one of the great ironies of the age in which we live is that um, in spite of everything, that all the modern conveniences of life, we live in a culture that has an availability deficit. 86% of men and 67% of women work more than 40 hours a week. We, we work more than anyone in the history of the industrialized world. And actually, your family right now spends 11 hours more at week, every week, than if you're my age, your parents did in 1979. We work more, we work harder, we work all the time, it's always on. And, and so we work and, and that erodes our availability to each other. But even when we're not working, we find other things that come in and take our availability. Anybody know what TWW stands for? Have you ever heard of this? Texting while walking. Um, we all know that you should never ever text and drive, right? Because that's dangerous. It turns out that texting while walking is becoming a significant problem in this country. Um, this is true. This is, these are facts, people. In, in 2008, there were over a thousand pedestrians that visited emergency rooms after being injured while texting while walking. 
And, and they expect this number to continue to double and, and um, double each year. And so I love the picture at the bottom of the, the, the pad behind the light pole because you just walked right into it. And um, the other one's an actual city sign that is in place. The city of Philadelphia started to really see a rash of texting while walking issues. And so in uh, 2012, on April Fool's Day, they, they painted these um, lanes in the sidewalk that were texting-only lanes. And it was like a joke, but then people started using them. And they were like, oh, you know, finally, a uh, place to text and walk. The average American spends 23 hours a week emailing, texting, using social media. We spend eight hours a month. That's an entire work day just on social media. And you know that it's a work day because you use it while you're at work. Um, 56%, we can't help ourselves. 56% of us every year say we're going to try to use less and less social media. But every year the numbers come out and what are we doing? More and more and more. I mean, like you need to see the picture of what I'm eating for lunch. I know you want to see this. I want to see the potato skins that you're having at Chili's. I want you to write down a word. The word is margin. You know what I'm talking about? Margin, like the little part around the edge of your page, right? Where you, that white space. When you were in high school, you tried to extend the margins so that you could get that paper to be a little bit longer. And now we spend all of our life bleeding into the margin all over with everything from important stuff like work to... Stupid stuff like Instagram, it just sucks the margin out of our lives. And we can't be available unless we're people who build margin into our life. If you're going to cultivate gospel-centered relationships, you have to have margin. The second thing I want us to see from Jesus is that cultivating gospel-centered relationships, they're cultivated by crossing over. I'm going to have to explain this a little bit. But you can write it down. Their gospel-centered relationships are cultivated when we cross over. Um, verse 9 in this, in this text, the woman says to Jesus, Why are you talking to me being a woman from Samaria? How is it that you, being a Jew, ask for me a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Jesus is basically crossing over every culturally accepted threshold that there was in that day. Jewish guy talking to a Samaritan woman, a man talking to the, a woman in the middle of a misogynistic and sexist culture. So he's overcoming racism and sexism. And that's what Jesus does. He crosses over massive barriers to come to people. He crossed over a massive barrier to come to you and to me. In the gospel, the name that was given to Jesus when he was born was Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. He's coming to us. And the apostle Paul wrote it like this in the New Testament. In the book of Philippians, Paul said this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ. And then look at all the crossing over that Jesus is doing. He does not, he existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped or to be held onto. And so he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The heart of the gospel is God crossing over massive barriers to come and save you. And the heart of gospel-centered relationships 
are us being people, as Paul said, have this attitude in yourselves. You go and do what he did. You go and cross over. Can I tell you something about you, though, and about me? We stink at this. We don't cross over. As a matter of fact, we do the opposite. And it's uh, been proven in study after study. Um, There was an article written um, that was a part of a story on the Today Show for NBC called BFFing Yourself, which I love the title of that. Like, of course, I'd be my own BFF because we all think we're ourselves are so great. But it's proven that that sociologists have proven when you have an opportunity to choose your friends, you tend to choose people who are similar to yourself. And sadly, it's if we look throughout the history of the church and like real specifically the more recent American history of the church, we find out that this is true of us as Christians who are supposed to be people who cross over like Jesus. In 1963, April 16th of 1963, Martin Luther King was in prison in Birmingham, Alabama. He had been arrested four days later, or earlier on April 12, 1963. They were staging protests in, in Birmingham because of the terrible conditions that African Americans were facing, specifically in Birmingham, but all across the South. Um, and on April 12th, in the newspaper, the day that Martin Luther King was arrested, there was an open letter that was written by eight pastors and spiritual leaders. They were, it was a, a kind of a combination of some Christian and Jewish religious leaders that wrote this letter, open letter to Martin Luther King and those who followed him in Birmingham on April 12th. And because they had had these protests on Good Friday and these pastors wrote a letter condemning Martin Luther King. And condemning the protesters because they were being outside disruptors is what they called them. The letter um, angered and broke Martin Luther King's heart. And for four days while he was in that jail cell, he began to write a response. He wrote a response that is probably my fa- one of my favorite writings that I've ever read that's a part of American history. And probably the favorite thing I've ever read from Martin Luther King. I, I love this whole letter. It's called, We Know It As Letter From Birmingham Jail. You should have read this at some point in your life. And if you haven't, you need to go Google it and see. In prison, without a note, without a book, Martin Luther King penned a 7,000 letter or word response back to these pastors and spiritual leaders. And it's an amazing piece of writing when you think about how he did it. He actually wrote it in the margins of the newspaper and on scrap piece of papers. And it was, it was smuggled out from his, by his lawyers. And by the fall of 1963, the letter began to be in circulation. It had been all compiled together. And in it, he quotes um, St. Augustine, Thomas Jefferson. You see how brilliant he was. And you think about this guy's not sitting in a library or Googling this stuff. He's just writing off the top of his head about the injustices that were done in the South. But the point is, towards the end of the letter, Martin Luther King says that he's been extremely heartbroken over two specific things. And one thing that really broke Martin Luther King's heart was what he called the white moderate. The, the white person who maybe or wasn't racist or wasn't participating in the terrible things that were happening in the South in those days, but that because they were so comfortable with life that they refused to stand up for what was true. But then the second thing that he wrote that broke his heart was the white church in the South. And he talked about walking all around the South and seeing beautiful churches and seminaries he says, and I have it on the screen here for you, he said over and over as he's walking through the south and looking at the churches, over and over I found myself asking, what kind of people worship here and who is their God? Isn't that a good question? 
Isn't that a piercing question for you and for me? And you know what? We actually have the opportunity more now than maybe ever before in, in our little local community to cross over a lot of barriers. We've come a long way since 1963 in terms of racism, but set that big ugliness aside for, for a minute and just think about you and me in our daily life and the opportunities we have to cross over barriers the way Jesus did. Um, I found this chart that they're going to put on the screen that shows racial diversity in Northwest Arkansas. This only goes through 2006. That's, that's a graph of the non-white population of Northwest Arkansas. I mean, you don't need a graph to tell you that this place is more diverse than it was in 1990 and more diverse than it was two years ago, right? The second picture down the lower right-hand side, that's, um, that's my driveway looking out 100 feet from my door to my neighbor's house. And my neighbor's name is Naveen. And uh, he's, um, he's Indian. Tried to kind of get to know him a little bit, but I haven't really crossed over. I haven't. I haven't really gone over there and, and really made part of my life just making Naveen a priority. Um, it's intimidating. It's scary. His English isn't great. Like, I don't know what we would talk about because I doubt we have all that much in common. But, but I know that this is so hard to do. And, and I know that I'm doing what we all do. And I'm, try, I'm, I'm picking my friends who look just like me and act just like me. But the question I have to ask when I pass Naveen's house on the way home today is what kind of people worship here? And what kind of God do we worship? I want you to write down a word. The word is uncomfortable. Crossing the barrier, crossing over is extremely uncomfortable for most of us. Some of you are natural extroverts that like just talk to anybody. I want to be like you and it drives me crazy when I see you interacting with people. All right, because that's not me. But we've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable if we're going to cultivate gospel-centered relationships, which involve us going, us crossing over. Third thing is gospel-centered relationships are cultivated by being focused. Gospel-centered relationships are cultivating by being focused. And I want to explain what I mean. And it kind of comes in verse 10 when this woman says to Jesus, and I talked about this when we read through it the first time, Jesus said to her, if you knew who was asking you, you asked me for water. In verse 11, the woman says, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? This woman could not get in her mind that there was something beyond the temporary physical here and now in life. She was stuck thinking in physical terms when he's thinking in spiritual terms. Now, we know enough about her background to know that this woman's not one who would be prone to um, sudden spiritual enlightenment, right? Because she comes from a rough history. But Jesus remains so focused on her and her heart and on spiritual condition. She tries to debate Jesus. Jesus says no to that. He, he doesn't even go into the debate. He talks about, let's worship in spirit and in truth. Again, she was talking about t- temporal, physical, short-term things. He's talking about big picture, long-term spiritual things. And the, the question for us is, are we focused on what is real? And actually, write that word down. Write down the word reality. Write down the word reality. Because reality is is that what we think is real isn't really what's real in our lives. And let me tell you what it's really easy to do in life. It's really easy for all of our relationships to begin to spin and focus 
and move around really temporary things. Husbands and wives, we tend to become like co-CEO and COO of like Ferguson, Inc. Or maybe we spend some time as like logistics professionals just moving loads from one school or game to another and dropping them off. And maybe at work we begin to be so focused that we think like selling one more widget than we did last time because that's what we're supposed to when we're there becomes everything that there is in life. And maybe we think with our kids that like getting them into the next greatest sporting event or getting the next great scholastic award is like the height of parenting. And guys, like even in our own guy-like relationships, it's easy for our friendships to begin to revolve around things like golf and hunting and fishing. And I got to say, because I love to fish, if you're not going to have a relationship focused on the gospel, like fishing is probably the second best thing. But... Women, I don't know exactly what your relationships revolve around. Probably like anti-golf, anti-fishing, anti-hunting kind of things. I don't know. But they're all, it's easy for none of it to be real. And can I just remind us something about the world and the stuff that we spend so much time focusing on? That it's all dying. The world is dying. The, the houses, the cars, the sporting events that seem so important, it's all dying. John, one of Jesus' followers, put it this way at the end of the Bible. In the book of 1 John, he says, The world is passing away and also is lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. All this stuff that so many of our relationships revolve around is so temporary. And can we go one step further and say that not only is the world dying, but you and I, we're, we're dying. The Bible says your life, in the book of James, your life is a vapor that appears for a little bit and then it vanishes away. It's a morning mist. It's a, it's a cloud of steam. It's, it's there and then it's gone. That's how short life is. And so in response to that, how do we cultivate gospel-centered relationships when those two things are true? We focus on what's real. And what's real is this, Colossians 3, verse 2, set your mind on things above and not on things of earth. Now, you've probably, if you've been at church at all, heard that verse a hundred times. But I want you to think about it differently today. I want you to think about that verse in terms of your relationships. When you see your neighbor, set your mind on things above about your neighbor's spiritual life. Husbands and wives, set your mind on things above together as you relate to one another, that your relationship with Christ is what's really real. And with your kids, set your mind on things above. You want them to be children who, you know, it's great if they excel at sports. It's even better if they excel at school and excel at career. But, but if your kid gets a scholarship or learns how to cast a fly rod and they don't walk with God, you haven't set your mind on things above. Your relationships are not gospel-centered. They're worldly-centered. So we've got to be focused on reality. Fourth thing. I've got two more. Fourth thing. We cultivate gospel-centered relationships when we take a deep interest in people, when we take interest by being interested. Jesus goes into, to like, almost randomly, and it, like, it's almost like he's just kind of show, showing off a little bit of, of his knowledge, but he goes deep into this woman's life. In verse 16, he says, go and call your husband. And I'm sure for that woman, it was like, okay, it just got real here now because that's too close to home. And she goes, I don't have a husband. And he said, you told the truth about that. But what you didn't say is you've had five husbands and the one you're with now isn't your husband. Her, this woman's life was an absolute tire fire of relationships. And a lot of us know this person. Like this person is actually in my family. And sometimes it's like, you know what? Just I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know the details. Or you begin to think that's just who they are and that's who they're always going to be. 
And all of us, you know, deep down inside have a little mess. And um, Jesus took an interest in the mess. One of the great ironies of our culture is that as connected as we are by all these different devices, emails, cell phone, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, ironically, we feel more and more alienated and more and more lonely all the time. Um, Between 1985 and 2004, the number of Americans who said that there was no one with whom they could discuss important matters tripled to 25%. Think about that. One in four of the people that are in this room right now feel like there is no one with whom that they can have a spiritual discussion or discuss anything that's important. One in four of the people at your office, one in four of the people in your neighborhood are essentially lonely. The Atlantic had a great article about the impact of social media and connectivity has, that has, has had on our lives. And in 2012, they wrote this article, and I pulled out this paragraph because I thought it fits so well. It said, within this world of instant and absolute communication, unbound, unbounded by limits of time or space, we suffer from unprecedented alienation. We've never been more detached from one another or lonelier. In a world consumed with ever more novel modes of socializing, we have less and less actual society. Isn't that true? We know it's true. And simply by being available for the people around us, we can begin to cultivate gospel-centered relationships. I want you to write down one word for this point, and that is the word ask. Who have you asked about this week? Who have you been available for? Who have you checked in on? Who have you been interested in? Um, a few months ago, Rachel, was that a something, a thing? <laughs> um, it involved the kids, and she was there. And um, so she, she's at this place. She begins to talk to some people that, that she didn't know and began to ask someone about, someone asked her what she did, and, you know, you know how these things go, and so just, just talking. And pretty soon, we started to see this person kind of show up at Grace Point on Sundays. And then pretty soon, we're hearing stories about, like, their spiritual life being changed and transformed. And, and it all started with pretty much, like, a simple invitation, like, hey, why don't you come? And it's amazing that in our world, we're so busy using 140 characters to tell people stuff, the power of asking really simple questions. And that's what Jesus did. He was interested in people's life. Okay, last thing. And this is a massive line of demarcation from the other ones. Until now, when we talk about cultivating gospel-centered relationships, we've really talked about some stuff that is really, um, it could be just the same as anybody should do. Like, I mean, everybody should be interested in other people and everybody should be available for other people. Everybody should be focused on what's really important. Here's the line of demarcation that makes this gospel-centered and not just being a good husband, wife, kid, friend, neighbor, employee. The line of demarcation is this. Gospel-centered relationships are cultivated by being intentional. In verse 25, the woman says, I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus answers her and says, that's me. That's me. And there comes a point and a time in every gospel-centered relationship where we have to step over the line of fear and the massive line of demarcation and say, I have to tell you about Jesus. What does Jesus 
saying to you. Jesus is what you need. Jesus is what you're longing for. This is what distinguishes this and makes us gospel-centered over everything else is that it's intentionally focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And you know what's easy to do in life, even for families who are all Christians, believers, is that we just don't talk about Jesus enough. And I know it's like it's a little weird to even say, but like we just... We're not, we don't have those conversations around the dinner table and together as a husband and wife when we're out to dinner. And sh- for sure, when it comes to people who don't know Jesus that we work with or, or we're neighbors with, there's this incredible fear that if I jump over that line, I'm never going back, isn't it? We're like that little kid who's at the top of a water slide and wants to go down so bad, but they're so high, there's so much fear, they end up walking the walk of shame back down the steps. And there's so many times in my life where I've been standing there on the edge in a discussion with someone, and I know I need to take the next step, and I take the walk of shame back away because I just can't cross that line. A couple years ago when I was um, starting out here in northwest Arkansas and early on in my career, I had this boss who was a rough, tough dude, um, he's like basically a big old redneck who did not care much about Jesus or spiritual things. He mainly liked, um, well, whatever people who don't care about that like, just normal stuff, I guess. But he was like a bulldozer, right? And this guy just, you know, plowed over stuff in front of him. But we worked together really, really well, and he was a big influence on my, on my career. And we were out fishing together one morning, and this guy that we had pretty much only talked about selling stuff for most of our time together started to open up to me about his dad. And his dad had died um, basically a year before my dad died when he was, he was fairly young. And so um, my dad died 12 years ago this coming Friday. And I began to talk to this person about what it's like to lose your dad. And, you know, it's like, your sto- it's like the story. Like Jerry was talking about last week. It's my story. And it's, it was this guy's story too. And I knew while I'm standing there on that boat fishing, like I need to say something here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I didn't know what I needed to say. It wasn't like I had like this, this is what you need to say. But I just knew this is an opportunity to say something significant, meaningful about my relationship with Jesus and how that's helped me in my life. And I took the walk of fear and I just didn't go there because I was scared. So I want you to write down this word and the word is jump. There comes a place and a time where we just got to jump in and point at Jesus and say, that's the answer. And it's hard, even though, I'm pointing at my wife, even though we're Christians together, it's hard for me to do that on a random Tuesday night with Rachel sitting around the house. It's hard for me to do that with my kids. It's really hard for me to do that with my friends and coworkers who don't know God. But at some point, we just have to jump and say, Jesus, that's what it's all about. And we cultivate gospel-centered relationships when we're intentional about pointing people to Christ. Let's look at the end of the story quickly. John chapter 4, verse 39. Jesus ends up staying in the, in the neighborhood, in this village with these people for two days. And the Bible says many of the Samaritans from that town believed because of the woman's testimony. Weird thing about gospel-centered relationships is they have a way of being very contagious and catching on, and that's what happened there. And my prayer for us as we end today is that we would all have more gospel-centered relationships in our life. 
I want you to do something as we close out. There's a big line at the bottom of your notes. I want you to look at that or find some white space somewhere. I want you to write down the name of one person that you need to be in a more gospel-centered relationship with. I should see you thinking and writing. If they're sitting next to you, that could be a little awkward, so just write down like John Smith. (laughs) Maybe it's someone that you know is a Christian. Maybe it's your husband or your wife or your kids, and you just know our relationship needs to turn from being centered around whatever it's been centered on to centered around being a gospel-centered relationship. Maybe it's a neighbor, a friend, a coworker who doesn't know Christ, and you know that it's time to move past talking about gardening and widgets and start talking about things that really matter in life. And I want you to spend just a minute praying for that person right now. You can close your eyes just to focus. And just ask God to help you cultivate a more gospel-centered relationship with that person. God, thank you for crossing over to redeem us. God, I pray that our relationships wouldn't get so caught up in the temporary things, but that we would focus on what's really real. God, I pray that that every relationship we have would be more centered on the amazing, great story of the gospel. God, I pray that because of our testimony, just like that woman, that many people would believe and follow you. Shame, I pray.